We are so excited that you are here with us at Fellowship Bible this morning. We noticed that we've had um, some some uh, students from, from Baylor come this morning. We just want to thank you and welcome you to Waco. And uh, if you are uh, looking for a church home or have any questions, I'll be in the foyer. I'd love to love to talk with you and get to know your name. Uh, before that, uh, before you leave today. So maybe that we'll have the chance to connect. Uh, we also want you to know that my name is George Olmstead. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you this morning. And we're going to continue in our study entitled Life Lessons from the Gospel of Luke, How to Know Jesus as the Lord of Your Life. And so we are coming close to the end of this series, and we've been walking through this, this summer, and it's been a really, really good challenge and also a lot of great life lessons that we've learned. We want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 and we'll be in verse 13. And so while you do that, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever found yourself in the, in the presence of someone you recognized, but you just couldn't put your finger on who it was? Have you ever been there? Well, maybe you were even having a conversation with that person. You're like, man, who is this person? Well, a little short story for you. Right after Sarah and I had moved to Waco, we, we went out to eat with a couple of friends of ours, and, and we were eating at DeCampley's, and we were having a wonderful evening of food and fellowship, but, but the entire evening, I could not help but continue to glance at the table next to me. There were two other couples sitting at that table, and, and, and one of the gentlemen just looked really, really familiar. And, and anyways, I, I couldn't figure out who it was, but, but it was on my mind for several days afterwards. Why, you may ask, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just weird like that. I can't let things go sometimes. But, but anyways, come to find out, I, I turn on the TV uh, a couple of weeks later, and I'm watching some college basketball, and, and lo and behold, I, I realized who I was sitting next to, and I, and I yell out to Sarah, it's Scott Drew! And she's like, what? I'm like, that person that was sitting next to us, and many of y'all know he's the Baylor basketball coach, and, I, and, and I'm familiar with Baylor's basketball. I'm not, I'm not a fan, and I know that's a sin to some of y'all, but it's okay. Uh, you can forgive me, and it'll be fine. But, but anyways, uh, he was sitting there, and, uh, and I was like, man, I, I wish I would have been able to at least say, hey, coach, man, good. Uh, hope you have a great season, or we're praying for you, or anything like that. And just, uh, but I missed that opportunity, but I knew it was somebody I, I recognized and I should know, but I, I just didn't. Well, we've all found ourselves uh, in that kind of situation. And as a matter of fact, we actually see that take place in our text this morning. And uh, what we're going to come across is a few of our followers, there are a few followers of Jesus. They're, they're having a conversation and, uh, and Jesus appears to them and, and they should instantly recognize him, but it takes a while for them to do so. And so let's kind of look into Luke chapter 24. Let's look at verse 13. Let's begin to set the scene of what's taking place here. Verse 13 and 14 says this, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they are, were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And so we understand there were two of them And it's important that as we start, we identify the them in verse 13. So Luke is referring to two followers of Jesus. They were, they had been gathered with the rest of Jesus' disciples after the resurrection. How do we know this? If you look up just a few verses in verse 9 of Luke 24, it reads, and they reported all these things to the eleven and the rest. So these two, um, who were walking on the road to Emmaus, they had just left this gathering, and they're on their way home. And, and these two are the them in verse 
29. And, and these two are, uh, I'm sorry, in verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. But it, they're also the them here we see on the road to Emmaus. And then Luke goes on to tell us that Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And, and so there was time for a nice walk for these two disciples to be had. And it would give them plenty of time to have some good conversation with each other. Well, in verse 14, we kind of see what, uh, what they're talking about. Luke allows us to eavesdrop on their conversation. And it says this in verse 14, they were talking with each other about all these things that had taken place. Well, what had taken place, if again, you look up to verses 1 through 12 of Luke 24, Luke has recorded the events of the resurrection of Jesus. And that had just taken place. As a matter of fact, um, that Sunday morning, three days after Jesus had been crucified upon the cross, we see that's what the events they're talking about. And if you remember last week, Grant shared with us the story of the innocent man in the middle who was rejected. The innocent man in the middle, Jesus Christ, who had been despised, who had been beaten, crucified, and killed. Uh, This man in the middle had accomplished his mission to become the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world, providing hope for redemption and reconciliation for those who would repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in surrendering to him as Lord and Savior. So after Jesus had died while on the cross, what happened? His body was taken and it was buried and and he laid buried in the tomb for three days. But, But on that third day, on that third day, Jesus walked out of the grave. And this is the entire promise fulfilled. Jesus is alive. He has now defeated death and defeated sin and defeated the grave. And, and this was the event that the two of them, those disciples, were discussing and talking about as they went on their journey. All the things that had happened over the last few days, and specifically on that morning of Jesus' resurrection. Now, one would think, as we read this, this conversation would be one of joy and hope and excitement. But we do not see that take place here. Listen to verse 15. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Have you ever had somebody join your conversation that really wasn't invited? You been there? Like, hey, hey, hold on. Back up a little bit. Well, this is what happens. And Jesus just kind of comes right along and boom, he's right there. The resurrection Christ He joins in this journey to Emmaus. And you would think at this exact moment that these two followers of Jesus would be jumping for joy. They would be hugging Jesus and and rejoicing with worship. But verse 16 tells us otherwise. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. God has done something very divine here. He, he prevented these two disciples from identifying Jesus from his physical appearance and even from his voice. Why? Because Jesus would now have the opportunity to teach of his death and resurrection. Uh, these two, they, they did not recognize it was Jesus who was in their midst and, and who had joined them in the journey. So if you remember over this summer in this series, we have seen Jesus do what? He's, he's taken the opportunity to teach valuable life lessons, life lessons to those 
who were in his presence. And so he's going to do the same right here in this scenario. The life lesson, though, I want us to be sure to understand is not just for these two disciples, but it's for all who will read the account of the gospel according to Luke. So this life lesson is also for you and for me this morning. And I'm not going to give that to you quite yet. We're going to learn about it as Jesus develops it. So we set the scene. You see the, the two walking on the road to Emmaus, and now Jesus has joined them. And now Luke shifts from the scene to showing us the hopelessness of the once hopeful. In verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you were exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still looking sad. Now listen, we have the resurrected Savior, Jesus himself, walking alongside two of his followers. And and instead of rejoicing, what do we have? We have a countenance of sadness, an attitude of disbelief, and and a hopelessness from those who once were full of hope and expectation. Now, now verse 18 begins to help us understand why these two are sad and hopeless. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered and said to them, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? I mean, these guys are like, goodness gracious, who is this guy? Where has he been? Has he literally had his head buried in the sand? Well, actually, he's been buried in a grave, but, but the reality is his head was not buried in the sand. He, he knows what's going on, but, but they don't know that. And how can he not know what's been going on? Then Jesus does what Jesus does, and he begins to ask some probing questions so that he can later unveil the life lesson. Follow with me in verse 19. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucify him. So so Luke is doing us a great job here. He's giving us insight into the hearts of these two disciples. Now, I want it to be noted that that Jesus, remember, both, both God and man, We understand that Jesus has humanity, but he also has divinity. And Jesus knew their heart, but he wants to hear them explain their heart. So what do these followers of Jesus really know about him? Well, they knew this. They knew his name and that he was from Nazareth. They knew he was a prophet, as Jesus had referred to himself in Luke 4.24. Uh, they knew he was mighty in deed and word. They, they knew his miracles. They had seen them. They had experienced his serving heart and his serving ways. They had been the recipients of his teaching and find themselves in that place now. They knew that the Jewish leaders were the ones who delivered the death sentence to Jesus. They had taken the blame off of the, the Romans and now they have focused it on the Jewish leaders. And they knew Jesus was crucified, and, and they knew, and we'll see this in just a moment, that he promised to redeem Israel. And so they knew a lot about who they were following. But they had a misguided expectation about how, who they were following would redeem them. Have you ever 
had an expectation that was unmet? If you've been married, the answer is yes. If you've been a parent, the answer is yes. If you've had any experience in life, the answer is yes. And that's what we see here. We see two followers of Jesus who have a misguided expectation about how they were going to be redeemed. Listen to verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now remember, they're talking about the Messiah. They're they're talking about Jesus. So now we learn why their countenance is one of sadness. And and we learn that their attitude is now one of of disbelief. and, And their once vigorous hope, full of expectation, is now one of hopelessness. They are sad because Jesus, the one they believed to be the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer, well, he had been buried and and now his tomb is empty and, and the Romans are still in control and the Messiah hasn't conquered them nor has he rescued Israel from them in a mighty victory of war. What has happened, as a matter of fact, these two on the road to Emmaus, in their mind, there really has been no redemption. Uh, This word redeemed here in our text is the Greek verb latruau, and it only appears here and in Titus 2 and in 1 Peter 1. But it has very strong ties to that Old Testament, and uh, it appears 90 times in the Septuagint, and its translation usually is out of Hebrew as gaal, which means to be set free, to redeem. And it's rooted in the Exodus story of God redeeming Israel from the Egyptians. If you're not familiar with that story of redemptions, I would encourage you to go back and start in Genesis and read through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books, and really begin to understand what this idea of redemption is all about. But this term used for redeemed is often used in the process of paying a ransom or price to gain freedom of a slave. This is exactly what Jesus has done here in the Gospels, and we've seen this through our life lessons in the Gospel of Luke. He has paid the ransom price. He's freed the people from their slavery to sin. However, this freedom was not gained through a military victory, but instead it was gained through the work on the cross. So these two disciples, they had failed to not only recognize Jesus in their midst, but just as important, they they failed to realize the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross while they were looking for redemption in this military style of physical freedom. So because of this hopelessness and because it has set in, their expectations had not been met. And we're all very familiar with that. So what are they to do now? Let's listen to the depth of this, this hopelessness and disbelief according to their own words. We find it in verses 21 through 24. Let's read it. It says, Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. 
Here is an aha moment, as I like to refer to it. These followers of Jesus, they, they find themselves sad and without hope because, listen to it, others told them about the resurrected Christ. Angels had seen and pronounced the resurrection of Jesus, but they themselves had not seen Jesus since the news had broke. They wouldn't, they couldn't believe because they hadn't seen him with their own eyes. And instead of going and looking for Jesus, they have now turned and have decided we'll go home. And that's why we find them on the road to Emmaus. The seeing is believing mentality had robbed them of their joy and celebration in simply knowing that Jesus was alive as he had promised he would be on the They knew this was to take place, but they had forgotten. As a matter of fact, these two disciples did not miss the man in the middle when they were following him before the events of the cross. They were there. They saw him. They knew him. They watched what he did. But they were missing the man in the middle as he is standing right in between them. Jesus has allowed the life lesson to develop by entering this conversation, by, by asking some probing questions, and then by listening. And, and now he's ready to reveal the life lesson to these disciples as well as to you and me. So we've set the scene. We, we've discovered why, the, the why to the hopeless of the once hopeful. And now Luke gives us the life lesson through the meat of the message beginning in verse 25. Let's look at that. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. This word foolish is no stranger to the New Testament writers. As a matter of fact, Paul used it in Galatians 3, 1 through 3 when he writes, as he's admonishing the Galatian believers, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Foolishness. Why did Jesus use this pointed term? Uh, Because these two men were slow of heart to believe what the prophets had spoken. Jesus is, is coming back to these two converted Jews and reminding them what they had been taught their entire life through the prophets. He's saying, listen, you, you've heard this your entire life. You've read this in your manuscripts, in the scriptures, your entire life. And how do we know that? Because in verse 26, here's what Jesus says. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? And to enter into his glory? Jesus is reminding Cleopas and his friend, this suffering would be the sign of Messiah. This suffering was foretold and written of years before. Christ must suffer these things. A few minutes ago I mentioned that these two had failed to see the redemption of the cross. And here Jesus is reminding them of the necessity of the cross in all the suffering that he had just faced. So in his teaching, Jesus would point out scriptures such as this, Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 5. He was despised 
and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Jesus must have suffered so that his glory would be revealed. And he goes on in verse 27 and he reads, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself. And where did he go? In all the scriptures. Jesus kept teaching and kept pointing to the scriptures. Jesus in his flesh, in this moment, he doesn't choose to reveal himself through the physical aspects of who he is. He could have shown them the scars. He could have said, look, it's me, but he doesn't. He chooses to reveal himself through the scriptures. And that begs us to ask the question, why? Because the sufficiency of scripture is the source to know the Savior. The inerrant, infallible, perfect written word of God is our source to know all about the Savior. This is the life lesson that Jesus is teaching these two disciples He's also teaching you and me, and he's teaching whoever will read the gospel account of Luke in this passage. Jesus says, hey, listen, you want to know who I am? It's all right here. This absolute truth breathed by God is your source to know the story of redemption and to know that I am the only one who is capable of redeeming you. How do we know this? How can we trust this? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is inspired by God. Do I need to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus? That is a great question that is asked all the time. And the answer is not at all. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The sufficiency of scripture is the source To know the Savior. Seeing is not believing in this case. As a matter of fact, searching the Scripture, studying the Scripture, learning the Scripture, knowing the Scripture and hiding it upon our heart, that is what will lead to understanding our need for a Savior and who that Savior is. The Scripture will reveal how we are to live for the Savior. So here's what the scripture reveals about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The the Messiah, the Savior that that these two disciples on their way to Emmaus were expecting and looking for. The Messiah was and is the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised, the blessing of Abraham to all nations, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the man who wrestled with Jacob, the lion of the tribe of Judah, The voice from the burning bush, the the Passover lamb, the prophet who is greater than Moses, the the captain of the Lord's army to Joshua, uh, the ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth, the son of David who was a king greater than David, 
the suffering Savior of Psalm 22 and the good shepherd of Psalm 23, the, the wisdom of Proverbs and the lover of the Song of Solomon, the Savior described in the prophets and the suffering servant that we just read in Isaiah 53, the Messiah is the princely Messiah of Daniel who would establish a kingdom that would never end. And, and one commentator sums it up like this, the Savior who knows the word of God perfectly because of his intimate union with the Spirit, who is its primary author, expounded to them in broad outline all the scriptures that referred to him from the first books of the Old Testament and right through to the end. Boy, Jesus says, you fools. This is exactly what the scripture has foretold, and it is being lived out right in front of you. The life lesson this morning the sufficiency of Scripture is the source of knowing the Savior. Luke, in verse 28, he brings us to the end of the journey to Emmaus. And, and we see now that, that Jesus had taught his lesson, and, and now he's going to allow these two disciples to physically see who he is through the breaking of bread. How do we know that? Listen in verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. They say, Sir, sir, it's been a long day. Why don't you stay with us, and why don't you get some rest? And I can't help but, but think and to even believe that these two followers of Jesus, uh, they were ministered to in that moment on the road to Emmaus. And, and as a matter of fact, they desired for more. Remember, they were sad when Jesus came upon them. But, but they had just been reminded through Scripture who the Messiah was and why he came and how he would come. Jesus does something these disciples would be very familiar with. He does stay. And so they've barked on a long journey. Now it's time for some dinner. And he, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he served it. And just a few days ago, in the upper room, Jesus had done this with the 12. And I am certain that over those few days, that word certainly spread to the other followers of Jesus that Jesus broke bread. And as Jesus broke bread in that moment with these two disciples, with Cleopas and his friend, they find themselves in the recognition of the risen Savior. Verse 31, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Please, let us not miss this this morning. Their eyes were opened. God in his divine power chose in this time to open the eyes of these two disciples so that they would realize that they had been in the midst of the risen Savior. Quick question, do you remember when your eyes were open to who Jesus was? Boy, it's a moment you'll never forget. 
Uh, Listen to their response in verse 32 again. It says, were our hearts not burning when he was speaking and explaining the scriptures? Here it is again. The sufficiency of scripture is the source of knowing the Savior. Their hearts, they burned when Jesus was teaching the scripture. It was the power of scripture that caused their heart to burn for the one who was teaching them. So I want to take just a moment and to explain how serious we take God's word here at Fellowship Bible Church. In our preaching, and our teaching, and our studies, we make it a point to let the scripture speak for itself. We let God's word lead. We keep content in context. We, we point to what the text is saying. And we do everything within our ability to avoid giving man-made opinions. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We do not use the Scripture to manipulate. We use the Scripture to glorify and point to the Savior. And to glorify and to point to the Savior in a way that helps us live for the Savior. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture so deeply that we will never move from it. Listen, we will not allow our culture to dictate the meaning of Scripture or allow it to let us pick and choose what parts we believe or teach. And more than that, it's our desire that every believer would be the same, to rest on the sufficiency of Scripture. As a matter of fact, we believe in this so much, and Grant spoke to this earlier, so I'm not going to expound too much on it, but this fall, as a church, we're embarking on a journey to maturity through 2 Timothy And this study is entitled Life-Giving Discipleship. And everything that we do this fall is going to revolve around this unified study as we take God's word and we rely on its sufficiency to equip believers to be disciple-making followers of Christ. And through a sermon series and small group Bible studies, we're going to share 14 tools that are vital in living out the life that Christ has called us to. And so here's the deal. We encourage each of you to join a small group Bible study, whether it's a men's study or a woman's study or a, a combined study with both men and women and knowing that you can participate on a Sunday morning, a Tuesday morning, a, a Wednesday evening. And, and there's even going to hopefully be some other opportunities so we can make sure that as many folks can go through this together. Why would we do something like this? We believe in the sufficiency and the power of Scripture because it allows us to become disciples who make disciples. Folks, we don't want to be the best-kept secret in Waco. We want to be known as a church who glorifies God and follows and lives out His Scripture in a way that says it's all about Jesus. It's all about letting people know who Jesus is. So these disciples here on the road to Emmaus, they were so excited and encouraged. And and we see Luke wrap up their story with them, explaining their experience to others. I love this part. We see this explanation of their experience in verse 33. And they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, found gathered together the eleven, those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them and the breaking of bread. Jesus is risen. Do you remember when we have that beautiful time of communion, that ordinance that's been given to the church, and, and we see the breaking of bread, what do, we, what do we remember? What do we celebrate? 
that Christ went to the cross to redeem us. It's beautiful. And so we get to be reminded every time we take communion of of how awesome Jesus going to the cross really was, as difficult and as painful as it was, it was for God's creation to be restored to the holy God. And so they go back and they, they didn't wait till the morning. They got up that hour after they recognized him and they went to Jerusalem another seven miles back and they begin to exclaim, he's alive, he's risen. It is so important. It is so important that we tell our story about how we met Jesus as well as what Jesus is doing within our lives. Well, life-giving discipleship this fall, that's what we pray it accomplishes, that we have the burning passions in our heart for the Scripture. So as we close today, there's one life lesson that you and I cannot afford to miss. I know a lot of, a lot of you like to write down Scriptures, and on this next point and our last point, there's, there's not, the Scriptures aren't written down. So I'm going I'm to speak slow enough where you can write them down, uh, and that way uh, you can have them for your study. But the life lesson this morning is this. Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. We ask this question, who is Jesus? John 14, 6. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. Why do we need Jesus? Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. What should we know about Jesus? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What should we know about Jesus? John three sixteen. Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. Who should we tell about Jesus? Acts 1.8, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Who should we tell? Everyone, everywhere, from the person sitting next to us to the person in the farthest reaches of the earth. Acts 1.8, scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior how should we share about Jesus? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says this, go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded. One more verse for this one. And if you missed our men's prayer breakfast, we encourage you to come next, uh, next uh, September, uh, this next uh, September on the third Saturday. Grant had the opportunity to share with us and he, and he used this verse, 1 Timothy 4, 12, and I was so encouraged by it. Because it goes right here. How should we share about Jesus? 1 Timothy 4.12, be an example in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Oh, we're not only supposed to share Jesus to the ones who don't know him. Oh, but we're supposed to be an example for the ones who do. Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. How do we live our life according to Jesus? Romans 12.1 and 2. 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1 and 2. How do we make sure we're not conformed to this world? How do we live our life according to Jesus? Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. And then how do we know we can trust Jesus to keep his word and his promises? And and folks, this is the biggest question for those who do not believe. Because guess what? We've all been hurt. We've all been lied to. Trust has been broken over and over again. The flesh, the sin curse, the world has allowed us to be the most untrusting people. And so this question matters. In Hebrews 10.23, Hebrews 10.23 answers it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Don't miss that this morning. As hard as we try to be the most trustworthy person, and we should pursue it and pursue it and ask forgiveness when we fail, but we need to understand it is Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who is the one we can trust without question because he is faithful. So this morning, I hope you already have a relationship with Jesus. These two disciples did, but they had to be reminded. But if you don't have a relationship this morning, prayerfully today is the day your eyes were opened to follow him as Savior. And if you already have a saving relationship with Jesus, then, then what are you doing to grow deeper? What are you doing to make his story known by reaching out? I just want to be honest with you. You don't need much. You don't need a bunch of fluff because we have the all-sufficient source right here in our hands to lead us, guide us, and direct us. Let's leave here today with this promise, this understanding, and this life application. Scripture is the source to know everything about the Savior. Let's pray. God, we love you. So thankful that we're able to follow you and have a relationship with you. And so thankful that we're able to recognize you for those who have been saved. So God, if there's one here this morning who simply has come to the realization they're in need of you, their eyes have been opened. We pray that they will confess their sin, that they'll repent, they'll submit themselves to you being the Lord of their life. And for the believer, God, we pray this morning as a church, we will stand for the sufficiency of Scripture, never waver, and trust you fully and faithfully until we see you face to face. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.